Welcome to the Director's Roundtable, a stage right theater podcast where we discuss all things directing. My name is Starshine Stanfield. I'm the Artistic Director of Stage Right Theater and one of your hosts for this podcast. And I'm Jim Nelson, Associate Artistic Director at Stage Right Theater and your co-host for these podcasts. Coming up for Stage Right Theater in 2019, we got starting off in January, the 11th through the 20th, Every Brilliant Thing by Duncan McMillan. Uh, that'll be at the Hanary Swim and Racket Club, so come and join us for that. Then uh, our next regularly scheduled show is a March 10th through the 19th, Matt and Ben by Mindy Kaling and Brenda Withers. And rounding off our season, May 10th through the 19th, A Round-Heeled Woman by Jane Jessica, and it was adapted by Jane Prouse. We also have a couple murder mysteries coming up. The first one will be in February. It'll be the Wynn Russell House Ghost Murders. So you want to come and see that. We've invited the ghosts to participate. They'll be part of the cast. And then in April, on April 12th and 13th, we're going to have the murder at the Apothecary, which is part of 1910 Public House, a restaurant there in Lilburn. So come and join us for all those. And of course, go on our website, stagerighttheater.org, and check out what we have coming up. All right. Welcome to our final episode for 2018. We'll be back with our regular roundtables in January, but for this episode, we wanted to do something a little different. So... We challenged each member of Sage Wright Theater's Board of Directors to share with our listeners one of their favorite bits of theater history. The challenge being they must tell their story while drunk. Uh, All of our board members did surprisingly well, which shows how much their passion for theater overrides the effects of alcohol. So sit back, have a drink, and perhaps learn something new about the history of theater. Drink break. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's drunk history. I'm supposed to be drinking, so I'm drinking. Hi, this is Eileen Miller with Stage Right Theater, and my drunk history is on Sarah Bernhardt. So, Sarah Bernhardt was basically, I think, the first really world famous actress period um so she was born um to a uh jewish dutch courtesan prostitute high class (laughs) prostitute but prostitute nonetheless um don't no one really knows actually who her dad was um but her mom was not exactly the most maternal of mothers and was kind of like, all right, yeah, I shot you out, go do your thing. <laughs> and so Sarah went to boarding school and then um, a convent eventually, and she actually at one time wanted to be a nun, which is kind of funny considering how the rest of her life went, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers! Um, but uh, one of her mother's lovers was uh, Napoleon III's um, half-brother. And he took a look at little Miss Sarah and was like, you know what? You need to be an actress. And so he used his pull um, to get her into 
the conservatory, the, the state-run theater school. Um, and she did okay. She, was, she wasn't seen as a particularly promising student, but she also kind of didn't really dig their whole curriculum. She was like, fuck y'all, this is way old school. <laughs> and kind of took what she could get from it. And then, uh, what's his face? Napoleon's half, third brother, whatever, um, got her in with the Comédia Francaise, which was like the Parisian theater to be in. Um, so she got in there uh, when she was a teenager. That was her first real gig. She was paid a salary, uh, but was definitely, like, the lowest of the low. Um, and uh, it was a pretty big deal for her to be in there as a teenager. But <laughs> at a certain point, there was this older leading lady, very well established, very, you know, big deal in the theater. And um, Sarah's little sister accidentally stepped on this woman's costume. And she was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And bitch shoved her into a marble column. And Sarah was like, oh, uh uh-uh. <laughs> Not even a little bit. And smacked the woman across the face. The theater management was like, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. You have to apologize. And Sarah was like, deuces, I'm out. <laughs> she, she took no shit, basically, and moved on with her, her life and her career and um, managed to uh, get a gig with another theater. I think it was the Odeon. While she was there, she, she got some progressively better roles and, and just, you know, kept doing her thing and started her, uh, her illustrious career as a... Uh, a manizer. I can't think of another word for a female womanizer, <laughs> except with dudes. <laughs> so I like manizer. There Why you not? Go. It works. <laughs> and um, she was linked to all sorts of dudes, like uh, Victor Hugo, guy who wrote Les Mis. Mm-hmm. She was she was a big fan of his, and he was definitely a big fan of hers. Um, and. Uh, the role of Salome was written for her. Um, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, yeah. Alexander Dumas wrote a part for her. That's the guy who wrote Three Musketeers. And uh, actually, she played Cleopatra. And when she was playing Cleopatra, she was super fucking method. Um, she had these two garter snakes that were serving as the asps that bit Cleopatra and you know, send her to her death. And she painted the palms of her hands red, even though the audience could barely see it. And she said, it does not matter if the audience can see it. I will see it. And I will know that I am looking at the hand of Cleopatra. So she was method. <laughs> that's method. <laughs> that, I mean, that's method, right? While we're talking about animals, um, she had a menagerie. She collected animals like she had cheetahs and tiger cubs and lions and lion cubs and uh, a monkey named Darwin, which I just love that she named her monkey Darwin. And she had an alligator that she named Ali Gaga. 
<laughs> Ellie Gaga. She used to sleep with this alligator. Sadly, the alligator died young. And the reason it died young is because she only fed it milk and champagne. An alligator fed only milk and champagne. Them bitches are carnivores. <laughs> milk and champagne ain't gonna cut. So Ali Gaga died. But some other... You want to talk about strange sleeping habits? Um, Sarah Bernhardt was known to have a coffin that she would sleep in from time to time. Um, now, it was said... There was a rumor that she would travel with this coffin, but that was not actually the case. Um, she had the coffin, um, and she would lie in there, and sometimes she would sleep in it, and sometimes she would just lay in there and work on her lines, because, excuse me, apparently um, coffins help you memorize lines. I don't know. I've never tried it. Um, not sure that it would help me memorize my lines, but hey, you know, whatever works. Different strokes for different folks. Um, but yeah, she would lie in this coffin. Uh, apparently she only slept in it, um, when her little sister who had tuberculosis was staying with her and she was looking after her. She would let her sister have the bed and she would sleep in the coffin. Because apparently a guest bed wasn't a thing. <laughs> I don't know. I would just sleep in a guest bed rather than a coffin, but apparently Sarah Bernhardt wanted a coffin, so she slept in a coffin. And I actually saw pictures of it, so that was, like, legit. Um, something that was really cool that she did, though, she was probably the first most famous woman to play Hamlet. And the reason she did that is because as she got older... There just weren't enough good parts for older women, good meaty roles. And so she was like, what am I going to do? Take smaller roles? No, fuck that. I'll play men. <laughs> and she did. But we're talking about the late 1800s here, so that was kind of a big deal. Um, but she did, and um, she uh, had a lot of success at it. Um, she would uh, tour. She was actually, um, she went from, you know, all of these roles in France to uh, a stint in London that went really well, which led to a U.S. tour. And she made buckets of money. Henry James said something like she was too American not to succeed in America because <laughs> she was such a freaking advertising <laughs> genius. <laughs> And there was this insanity around her arrival that the description just reminds me of what I think Beatlemania must have been yeah. like. The you know the first time they stepped off the the plane in the states, the first time she stepped off the boat in the states, like yeah. everyone lost their damn minds. <laughs> but she was a really savvy businesswoman, and so I mean she did beautifully. And she would make buckets and buckets of money. Sadly, it still couldn't keep up with her tastes. <laughs> because Sarah loved all of the finer things. So she loved jewelry. I mean, there were just descriptions of her just dripping in jewels. And her menagerie, like all of these exotic animals. Oh, she would wear a bat as a hat. Like, not a cute little, like... Stuffed bat that, you know, stuffed animal bat that you keep around for your Halloween decorations or whatever. No, it was literally a bat that had been taxidermied and made into a hat. 
she was. <laughs> I have to say, she's she's admirable. Like, she has some balls on her, and she took no shit. And props to her for that. I mean, hugely so. And she actually, um, during the Franco-Prussian War, she became Francis' sweetheart. You know, this this woman who, I mean, she had a baby out of wedlock, didn't care. She did get married briefly um, to a guy who really wasn't that into her and uh, kicked him to the curve because he was constantly womanizing and going off and blowing all her, her, her money. And her kid was an incessant gambler. And so, like, he was wasting all of her money. And so that contributed back to what I was saying before is, like, she'd go on tour, make this shit tons of money, and then it would all go away. And so then she'd just go on tour again. So every three or four years when she started running out of money, she'd just go on tour. Um, but when she became Frances' sweetheart was uh, she turned the theater that she was running into a military hospital for soldiers. And she would bully all of her patrons and wealthy friends and acquaintances into donating food and money. And she acted as a nurse and she actually assisted um, surgeons. Oh, wow. In amputations and operations and all sorts of stuff like that. So, yeah, and and she uh, made some short films. Ooh, ooh, her Hamlet was one of the earliest things to ever be set on motion picture. Uh, it was the, the battle, um, the duel between Hamlet and Laertes. And she was playing Hamlet, and um, I believe it was Lumiere. Who recorded it and it was shown at France's equivalent of the World's Fair Expo or you know some big kind of display of science and technology and all of that and it was shown there and very 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 well received um, as not everything she did she definitely had some flops but a lot of what she did was very very well received um, and it was said she had a voice like a golden bell um, that was, uh, I saw a lot of stuff commenting on what an amazing voice she had. I wish I could hear a recording of it. Um, and she apparently died beautifully. <laughs> I saw a quote somewhere that said, uh, she died as angels would were they allowed to, or permit something along those lines. What else? Oh, goodness. She was, she was kind of amazing. Um, she played Joan of Arc at 45, which was funny because she was a 45-year-old woman playing a 19-year-old martyr. <laughs> but she didn't give a fuck. She did it anyway. She's like, wait, what? No, Joan of Arc, patriotic. I'm doing it. I don't care. And then uh, she she definitely went all out in everything she did. And sadly, one night in a play called La Tosca, or La Tosca, she had performed it many times, and the final scene was her jumping to her death, or, you know, the, her character jumping to their death. And the mattress that she was supposed to land on was not in the correct place, and she fell on her, her knee and injured her leg pretty badly. Um, and that was actually in Rio, and she refused. They were like, Miss Bernhardt, let us take you to the hospital. And she's like, no! going to the hospital in Rio get me on a boat and she went to New York 
And in New York, she was immobilized in her hotel room for like 15 days before they'd let her get on a boat to go back to France. Well, her leg never really recovered. Um, like, I think that happened in 1906, and in 1915, she had a, a part of her right leg amputated. And you think, most people would think that that would make you stop, right? Like, yeah. You'd be like, okay, I lost half my leg, I'm done. <laughs> uh-uh. Uh-uh. She still, still went on, still did the, the equivalent of a USO tour. And went to play, you know, to perform scenes for troops that were either just back from battle or just getting ready to go into battle. And she was carried in a palanquin, <laughs> which is one of those, like, boxes with the poles going through it where people carry royalty around in those. Yes, she would recline in a white palanquin <laughs> and have her quarters carry her around and and she would perform scenes that just didn't require a lot of movement and would still do them and still received immense amounts of praise for it and just people couldn't get enough of her and she would uh still perform and um she i mean she did shows like pretty much up until the day she died uh in 1922 during a dress rehearsal for whatever show she was doing at the time, she fell into a coma for like an hour. I don't know who falls into a coma for an hour. I think it usually lasts a little longer than that. It's called a coma. That's what they called it. When she came to, apparently she said, when do I go on? <laughs> or at least that's, that's what they say. Um... And then, sadly, in 1923, uh, she she fell ill, and and she didn't recover. And really, it was only she only lingered for about three days, and then she passed away um, from uremia, which I think we figured out was some sort of kidney issue, kidney failure, kidney yeah. failure. Um, and and her funeral was. A huge deal. I mean, like 30,000 mourners followed her coffin through the streets of Paris. And uh, she was laid to rest. And Mark Twain has this beautiful quote about her. And it was, uh, there are five kinds of actresses. Bad actresses, fair actresses, good actresses, great actresses. And then there's Sarah Bernhardt. Talked no, way no. too much. I'm sorry. You did. Like, God, I leaned. Shut up. And like three glasses of whiskey and three quarters of a bottle of wine. So, how are you guys feeling? <laughs> oh, is this my turn? Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Um, my name is Paul Franklin. I'm talking about the Actors' Equity Strike of uh, 1919. All right. So, uh, so let's 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 take it back. Let's step way back. All right. We're gonna go all the way back to the early 1900s. A little space sound effects or something. Anyways, so yeah. Um, <laughs> actors, much like literally every other profession at the time, had so... They, they had really, really bad uh, working conditions, right? So there was... Uh, the Claw Erringer Syndicate was going around and making things terrible. They were they were going what, around... What, and, what yeah, was that name again? Claw Erlinger. Erlinger? 
Erlinger? Erlinger. Erlinger. Sorry, these are big words for drunk ass me. Yeah, they, they formed in uh, 1986. It's just a bunch of, you know, theater owners, booking managers, things a- like 1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1896-1
you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, hey, I don't like what you're doing. I'm going to charge you five bucks. And, you know, five bucks in the 1990s, you know, like early 1910s or whatever was a big fucking deal, you know? Right. I'd be like getting, you know, imagine if you were at work, you know, and you guys, you know, manager's just like, hey, I don't like how loud you're talking. <laughs> I don't like the way you're dressed. I don't like who you're hanging out with. I'm going to charge you $100 out of your paycheck. Yeah, they all the managers of these companies have basically had the freedom to do it. All the people who owned all these theaters, the Clarlinger Syndicate, the Schuberts, they they just could make whatever kind of contracts they wanted to. Anyways, so uh, to combat this kind of bullshit, the Actors Equity Association was created. It was like 112 actors got in a room and said, "Hey, man, we're tired of this shit." We are absolutely tired of this shit. And so they elected Francis Wilson as their president and said that, hey, we're going to make a standard contract. We're going to present, we're going to unionize, we're going to make this contract, and we're going to present it to all these, these bullshit uh, managers of these theaters and these companies and whatever. So anyways, they, pre they present it to what, what the, the formation of the time was, the, uh, the United Managers Protective Association, which the name, the, it, it goes by Oompa, which, you know... Uh, sounds like we need some orange men singing a little song or something like that, spelling their doom, which would be great because fuck the Oompa. <laughs> so anyways, they were trying to demand, you know, they could only do a certain number of unpaid rehearsals before they need to get paid and things like that, you know, demanding extra pay for for those extra matinee performances. And anytime there was, like, performances added, they want to be paid for those ones. And um, they needed, like, they need to be... Uh, warned ahead of time if they were going to be fired or something like that. Again, like like two weeks or some shit like that. And they also want to be paid for costuming and travel because the, earlier the managers were like, hey man, I need you to pay for everything. And the actors were like, hey, we don't have the money for that. And it's kind of not our responsibility because you wouldn't have a show if it weren't for us. You know? Yay, Marxism. Um, <laughs> there was actually a, a meeting between the... Uh, the AEA and Oompa back in like early 1919, like March or some shit like that. And uh, so Francis Wilson basically came forward as negotiations were ongoing. Oompa was trying to say, hey, you know, we're going to do this for you. We're going to do this for you. We're going to do this, et cetera, et cetera. Francis Wilson's like, hell no. <laughs> He's like, you know, we came to you guys earlier with a standard contract and you guys decided to not do any of that. Times are different now. You know, now we're demanding control. And so, Francis, Francis Wilson was not a well-liked man um, among the the managers that, that ran these theaters. Shocker right? that. Shocker <laughs> that. But there was one dude in particular who really didn't like him. Uh, David Belasco, like, absolutely loathed Francis Wilson. They're, like, at, at this big meeting. So Francis Wilson's like, nah, dog, I've had enough of this shit. And so, uh, Belasco... He said, Francis Wilson! Just like, almost like a, it sounded like a fucking snake. And then, and then basically all pandemonium broke loose in the meeting, and like nobody could decide on anything, and all the negotiations just fucking fell through. You know, I'm sure a chair was thrown or something like that. That's the only way that I could really visualize this meeting. <laughs> like, it was almost like WWE or something like that cage match between Francis Wilson and David Belasco. <laughs> but needless to say, uh, nothing good came out of that meeting. So, the, the AEA really 
didn't have as much power as they thought they had because the the uh, the American Federation of Labor was what really had the backing power at the time. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who who had the real voice of the labor the labor movement. The AFL, the American Federation of Labor, those were the dudes that you you wanted them behind it because otherwise you didn't really have the authority. Like nobody commanded respect mm-hmm. from their employers the way that the AFL did. Right. Right. So the AEA wanted to go up to the American Federation of Labor and say, hey, why won't you back us? Come on, back us. Let's do this. You know, let's right. let's get a partnership going. Turns out that the AFL only gave out a, a charter to uh, one one portion of a an industry at a time. You know, say the the steel workers, they they give out a charter to one specific steel worker union, say you know, and one specific like masons, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing happened for the actors. The actors that already had the charter were the White Rats actors, which great fucking name right. by the way. They were the ones that the AFL had backed for for actors, and so the AEA they decided to approach the white rats and say, Hey, look, we really, you know, we're, we're really strong right now. We really want to have the AFL back us. And the white rats, white rats are like, nah, nah, we're cool. We're cool being the actors that the <laughs> AFL backs. You know, we're cool with that. You know, let's do that. No, nah, no, nah, dog. I'm good. I'm good. The, the, some more, some more talks were had. And so Oompa decided back in 1917, they agreed to a standard contract. It was about one year, um, and it was used by any any company that was under UPA control. However, during that time, while they agreed to the contract, they said, uh, fuck that shit for most of it. <laughs> you know, you, you'll find that there's a, there's a pattern here where UPA says, hey, yo, we'll, we'll accept this contract, and it just completely ignores it. There's like everything is completely figurative in in their in their brain, um, and then uh, so in 1919, you know, it took, you know after a while, um, Umpa dissolved and made the Producing Managers Association, uh, the PMA. They wanted to uh, take the standard contract, but then they just ignore it. You know, it's it's like you know how companies restructure mm-hmm. when they go bankrupt, but they just restructure under different names. That's basically what Oompa did. Oompa was getting a lot of flack at the time, so they just basically dissolved, and then everybody who was an Oompa re reformed as the Producing Managers Association, the PMA, just just basically just taking one association, basically renaming it another to get all the flack that they were getting at the time. And so, um, you know, things went back and forth a lot, and then finally something good actually happened. Hard to believe in this story, isn't it? Right. Something good actually happened. So it took a while, but the White Rats and the AEA actually decided to kind of conspire and work within the system. So what they did was, yes, the American Federation of Labor could only give out one charter to actors, so to speak. But So what the White Rats and the AEA ended up doing was they combined themselves to make the the 4A. It was the Associated Actors and uh, Artists okay. Artists of America. 4A is so much easier to remember 4A. Yeah. Because that means you don't have to remember Associated Actors of whatever. whatever. <laughs> um, but because what the, what they did was they, they made the 4A and then they made chapters of the 4A, so that the White Rats were one chapter, and the AEA was another chapter. And because they were both chapters of the 4A, and the 4A 
had the charter from the AFL, both acting guilds had the char had the charter. Right. It applied to both of them. So now the White Rats didn't have to give up the the backing that the AFL gave them and the AEA finally the AFL is able to actually back the AEA and give them the real muscle that they needed because that's really what they were lacking. They were lacking that real muscle. So uh, you know, we get later in, into 1919, the AEA tries to organize a walkout, um, but only one member followed through with that, so uh, <laughs> that one didn't go quite as well as they thought they would. Anyway, so eventually what they really need to do was declare a strike. And so, in August of uh, 1919, the strike happened that's what this whole this whole thing has been about it's, it's finally getting to the strike right all the uh all the members of the AA were like screw this all right so they said screw the pma we're not going to work with any of them and it actually ended up closing like 12 theaters at the time because nobody in the pma knew what the knew what to do like they they were just completely they were completely blindsided. Was they they know none of them thought that any of the actors were actually going to go through with this, right? Yeah. And so completely screwed them over. They were just like, well, well, what are we gonna do? You know, they they had to give like twenty five hundred dollars or so in, in in refunds to people, and they had to hire a bunch of scabs. Which anybody doesn't know what scab is. It's, it's basically people who agree to work for the companies that are being striked, stricken. Stroke? I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's a stroke. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. Anyways. So, you know, the strike is happening for, for about a month. And so there's there's a ton of big name actors that are that are getting behind this movement. You know, some of them, there are some actors like like uh, Matty Fisk, who is like, this is beneath us, you know. Actors don't need unions. We're not like manual labor workers. And then you get other people, people like 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 Ethel Barrymore and Lionel Barrymore, you know, and, and uh, uh, W.C. Fields and all these other like famous actors at the time. Uh, Ed Wynn, famous vaudevillian actor. And they're all like, no, no, I, th I think we need this representation. So what they do is they throw a big fundraiser to raise money for the AEA. And so, you know, uh, W.C. Fields acts as the master of ceremonies for this big event. And uh, we, we get, like, uh, a troupe of, uh, of dancers are taught this routine in, like, like 45 minutes. And they just go on and do it, raise money for this stuff. Ethel Barrymore and her brother Lionel, they put on the second act of some play. I can't remember. I'll stop <laughs> um, And Ed Wynn, who is, you know, famous vaudeville actor, um, actually was barred from performing legally. And so what they did was they put a spotlight on him. He was sitting in the third row, and they put a spotlight on him. And uh, he said, well, I'm currently being legally barred from performing, but what I would have performed if I were legally performed to do right. So he performed his entire act from the third row in the, in the <laughs> seating. It's just you know. a big middle finger to whatever judge had barred him on the stage. So anyways, they raise a ton of money. For the AEA, I think they raised like like one hundred twenty thousand dollars or something like whatever it was. But the, the the best part about it was was that the theaters at the time that they were striking ended up losing like two million dollars because of the strike. Two million nineteen nineteen dollars. So so basically, all these theaters were like, well, we we have to do something. We we have to bargain with them. We're losing too much money. So they get they get into one room and they start negotiating. We that that's where we get the contracts that we get today. We we have the conditions that we do today because of this specific strike.
Robin Hood and Little yes. John Run. Anyways, okay. anyways. I mean, I am drunk. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm trying to. Sorry, sorry, it's so hard not to sound stupid. Um, I'm Kendall Franklin, and I am doing the history of Ira Frederick Aldrich. First, let's start from the very beginning. So, early 19th century, and uh, I guess the first recorded stuff or whatever for black people for in theater uh are uh, apparently according to some one article the minstrels which is kind of bullshit um okay <laughs> whatever so yeah you've got some racist white dudes who want to do caricatures of black guys and they're super racist and that's not really fun so let's start with something even more fun so we have a guy named william brown who was born in the west indies and he was a ship steward who traveled. He was a what? Ship steward. <laughs> okay. It's in the article. <laughs> a ship steward. Maybe, I don't know. So he helped, like, attend clean, assisted ships. So, or. <laughs> um, but he was able to travel outside of the United States and get a broader understanding of theater. And he was like, you know, theater's pretty cool. And so I, I want I want black people to, to experience theater that's not minstrels full of racist white dudes. So who who basically are characters of black people who apparently love to be slaves? No. So what he did was he was like, you know what, I, I got a broader understanding of, of theater. And how about I'm gonna purchase the house, which is what he did. And in his backyard, he was like, Black people, come. Let's do some theater. Let's just do some poems. Let's do some Shakespeare. Let's do some theater that's just like not racist. And so they come and they do theater and they do poems and they do short essay, short drama, dramatic essays. And it's not, you know, it's just very welcoming. And so a guy, James Hulot, Hulet, 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 thank you, um, was like, he came like, all the time and it was like William this is very fucking cool let's let's hire some black people let's make this a thing and so they started the African Grove Company which the first resident African theater company in America in 1821 or 1820s and <laughs> <laughs> and so they were doing they were just doing great things and a lot of Shakespeare and bringing some black magic into Shakespeare and it was great. And so the and so Ira Ald, uh, Frederick Aldridge, his first experience with Shakespeare at this company was like, you know, Shakespeare is kind of my shit. So I think I might do this. And so he's done it and he was very good. But he was like, you know, America's pretty fucking racist. I don't think I'm going to go any far with this and so he was like okay it's 1824 and he was like okay america you're you're too much let's go over to great britain or europe they seem to be ahead of you as far as getting rid of slavery i might have more you know chances over there and so he goes over there and he and he debuts and he in london and he plays the role of othello and people were like 
holy shit, this is, this guy's amazing. And so he becomes very fucking popular. Can I use that word? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't want to use the F word to be funny, but I just really want to emphasize, like, he just went to Europe and (laughs) in a fucking way. Um, And so he goes over there, and he's he's very popular. And people are like, okay, this this Shakespearean and tragedian actor is going to be somebody. Um, We love this. And, um, and so people, so yeah, they love him very much and he got a bunch of awards and, 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 um, and so, uh, what happened was that he eventually, uh, so once he got out of London, he started to tour around Europe and he, interesting enough, he actually kind of, decided to create his own backstory sort of like you know like the joker you know how like you don't really know the joker's backstory he kind of like keeps making up shit that's exactly what he did he (laughs) renounced his american heritage and was like hey i'm a descendant of a prince a senegalese senegalese prince um so i'm legit uh and i was born in africa and i am pretty cool and so they were like okay and then eventually people started calling him the african roshius and roshius comes from the ancient roman actor like ancient rome (laughs) not like rome italy like ancient rome (laughs) first century ancient Rome um <laughs> and like and then African to it so like that's cool <laughs> like you're like this African ancient Roman dude um and then that was and then eventually you know that Roshius actually was a term not only for this famous ancient Roman actor but it was a term used for people who were very successful actors so Rashi's was used to for many people who were very famous, um, but he got termed the African Rashi's, which was kind of badass, and that's kind of what he referred himself as for each play that he was in was the African Rashi's, um, and so he was kind of adding to this really cool mythical magical mysterious background to make himself more interesting, and he also um, introduced like the name Keen to his name to kind of add to that a little bit because there was a very famous British actor named Edmund Keen and it, 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 it I guess the intent was to make people like is he isn't he related to this Keen or whatever again putting him on like this the spotlight uh, and making people like very interested in him and so he started to flourish as he tore across Europe and um eventually he uh but yes so he does shakespearean plays and he loves it very much so and he adapted a few you know stuff on the side but what was really cool for him too was that after the closing um of the production that he was in he would always address to the audience and plead to them please you know we need to free my people, you know, like that, that's very important. We need to free these slaves and stuff like that. So I thought it was very cool. Um, 
that he would do that. Um, you know, not being from his own country, he's in this other other country, and he's just like, no, I'm going to stand my ground. I'm an abolitionist. It doesn't matter if I'm in a white play. Well, Othello's not really white. Othello is black. Um, but uh, but he did other Shakespearean stuff. Like, you know, so he was actually, he did, he played white roles too. But even then, he was like, okay, that's great. I love Shakespeare. That's fine. But free my people. Slavery really fucking sucks. This is not great. And so... Um, he would do that at the closing of each production that he was in. And so, um, eventually he, uh, so yes, he marries Margaret, Mary, Mary, Margaret, M. <laughs> M. Um, and, and so, yeah, they're very, in a, in a very loving relationship, even though he has a child with someone else. Maybe she was too ill to have children. I don't know. But they raised this child. And eventually his wife, first wife dies. And he marries his mistress. And they have children. And those children end up being musical prodigies as well. Which was pretty cool. And so eventually he dies in... Uh, no, not 1967. Sorry. 1867. And... Um, Unfortunately, this awesome guy is forgotten for so many years, um, which is unfortunate because I read the critic reviews and I read all this stuff of how amazing Ira was as Othello and all these different Shakespearean actors. And it, like, I've never seen Othello. I don't even know what Othello's about. But <laughs> I kind of want to be in a time machine and go back in time to see him perform because we're talking about a black african-american in the 1820s during slavery and racism and discrimination and stuff like that and we're talking about a guy who flourishes throughout europe in a white or in like white place um because yes he is famous for othello but he does other stuff and he does play right role like white characters as well how did this guy become so famous and so loved in Russia and Prussia and Poland? Like, I, he must have been so amazing. So it's like, I, I want to take a time machine to go back to see Othello for the first time, but with Ira performing Othello. Like, because I, I have to understand why, like, this guy was so amazing. And yet, after his death, he ends up being forgotten, which is heartbreaking. And, um... And but what was really cool kind of out of it was that in America, you had a lot of African-American uh, theater actors who were like, I was my hero. Like, oh, my God. Like and so you had a group in Philadelphia that started a theater company called the Ira Aldrich Company Troop, 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 Ira Aldrich Troop that was like dude yeah this guy that like left america to become shakespeare we gotta name ourselves over this guy and so they did and what was really cool about them was that they were also a minstrel group but they were not a character of themselves they were a character of irish white men so they kind of like turned it on the whole like Thing about minstrels because minstrels like are basically like it started with white men being characters of black men you know 
portraying stereotypical racist um black you know happy-go-lucky buffoonist like you know bullshit and so what this troupe did was that they kind of like turned that on themselves and kind of like was doing a character of Irishman um which was pretty awesome so uh I really am very uh very uh was very intrigued by Ira because um when I got asked to do this, I immediately was like, I really want to dive into black history in theater. And yes, we have a, we have a a movement in the Harlem Renaissance where black culture, literature, um, even theater thrived and flourished in this, in this movement. But I, I wanted to know the beginnings. I wanted to know, um, the people who, 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 uh, uh, started all of this like where did where did it all begin and so I, I got back a little bit further a little bit earlier than that god damn it cat <laughs> shit god oh my god I want to roll here okay um <clears throat> sorry uh <laughs> and so um it was uh it was very it, it treats me very much um, that we have these people again before uh, the Harlem Renaissance because a lot of people like to like to go to that movement, which is a fantastic movement. But I again, I like to go even earlier than that to see people who were, um, you know, trying to make a name for themselves. And uh, it's just very impressive to me that this guy um, during during the time of enslavement for Black Americans. Um, that would be able to have this kind of success um, overseas and um, and yeah uh, also there was a play uh, based on Ira called The Red Velvet Um, I don't know the playwright's name I apologize please fact check that for me Um, and uh, that takes that basically centers around the whole fact of when Edmund Keene who was playing Othello at that time collapse on stage and they need a new Othello and here comes this awesome black guy from America who's like, dude, Othello's my shit. I got this. And he just wows everybody. So um, it's very cool. Um, And yeah, that's the history of Ira. Frederick Aldrich. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Am I boring you? Like, Ira is fucking awesome. My dog is drinking water really loud. Really, Sable? She's like, yes, I'm owning myself right now. She's owning herself right now. Hello. I'm Shannon Alexander, AKA Bonnie Bodacious, talking about the history of burlesque and theater. So burlesque as a word means to make fun of, to send up, to satirize. So in the, in the 17th century, in the late 17th century, this started to become a thing in Europe and in Britain where people would take like popular operas and plays and literary works and 
satirize them and send them up in a way that made fun of the aristocracy, made fun of royalty, and made fun of the people in power, made fun of the, the, the patriarchy, really, in a way that challenges us to question taboos. Taboos that we cannot talk about in polite society, but under the veil of burlesque, under the veil of humor, under the veil of costuming and characterization, we can question what all of this means. So in the early 18th century, 19th century? 18th. 19th, late 18th, 19th century, we began spoofing popular operas and plays and literary works. And there's some question as to whether burlesque was ever intended to be only for the lower class or only for the middle class. But the reality is, is a lot of burlesque in the beginning was based upon spoofing literary works and operas and plays that only the middle class would have really had any understanding of. The lower class would have caught some of the double entendre, some of the friskiness, some of the bodiness, but they may not have understood all of the humor that was built into burlesque at that time and place. In the early 19th century, in London, there was a woman named Elise Vestris. Vestris? Who is considered by many to be the first burlesque star. She starred in spoofs of major operas of the day. In fact, she starred as Don Giovanni. So that was a major opera of the day, and it was burlesqued in a performance that was known as Don Giovanni in London. She starred in that performance. She cross-dressed, she produced, she burlesqued the, the idea of Don Giovanni. And her performances were so well-received as she cross-dressed and wore I'm looking for breeches, <laughs> form-fitting breeches that were not at all common for women of the day. It actually spawned an entire industry in creating plaster casts of her lower legs that gentlemen could take home and enjoy, but only up to the knee because we wanted to be modest. <laughs> And Elise Vestris, in addition to starring in John v, John, Don Viajani, <laughs> Don Giovanni, in London, she went on to control and run her own theater, the Olympic Theater on White Street, which she dedicated to the art of burlesque. So this is a woman who was a cross-dresser, an entrepreneur, a producer, and a woman in the first half of the 19th century. And she was absolutely celebrated in her time, which is crazy for us to think about right now. And Gilbert and Sullivan are said to have looked to burlesque for inspiration. And burlesque is said to be an ancestor of all modern musical theater because of their absorption of the burlesque model in the 19th century.
Now, many burlesque artists had attempted to translate their burlesque model to the United States. And it's important to understand that at this point, burlesque was body, it was frisky, it was subversive, but it did not include striptease. It wasn't until the 1960s that Lydia Thompson, a British burlesque artist, decided to bring her troupe, the British Blondes, to the United States. And in anticipation of this event, she created publicity by using scandal in the media, which is, I think, you know, we think in 2018, that's, of course, why wouldn't you do that? But in the 1860s, this must have been revolutionary. She had stories published in the media that were absurdly false about Russian princes committing suicide over her beauty. But these stories in the media led to the fact that when they came over to New York, that they were sold out. This was a troupe of Lydia Thompson and the British Blondes, none of whom were blonde. They were the first peroxided blonde stars of the United States, the long and hallowed tradition that they titillated and inspired American audiences to buy tickets. These were still British burlesque performances in the sense that they took established literary tropes and created entire shows around them with music and costuming and cross-dressing. It was a lot of cross-dressing. So these were shows that were filled with women who were fulfilling male roles who were Amazonian in their power and their stature and their body type in a way that titillated the American audience to buy ticket after ticket after ticket, even after the moral concern in the community raised questions and said, we don't think this is okay. All the news stories that were published about moral issues around burlesque shows just led to lead to more tickets and tickets and tickets. So that Lydia Thompson's first season with the British salon, uh, British Blondes in New York City grossed over $370,000 in the 1860s. It was so much that you would think that American men had never seen women's legs before. <laughs> Because at the end of the day, all they were doing was taking the Victorian costuming of corsetry and just removing the skirts and having tights. They weren't really showing skin, they were just having tights. And they were experiencing, uh, they, were, they were acting out powerful positions in society, they were writing their own scripts, they were producing their own shows. By the end of the 1800s, men started to step in and take more control over producing burlesque shows. And as Starshine pointed out as we were talking about this, <laughs> if a potential theater owner had a choice between talking to a female producer of burlesque show or a male producer of burlesque show, they're going to choose the male producer. And so the subversive feminine wit that had become a huge part of burlesque up until that point began being pushed aside in favor of the idea of showing as much female skin as was legal at the time, which was limited at the end of the 19th century. So men ruined everything. 
Basically, yes. <laughs> Men ruined everything, which is not a big surprise. <clears throat> so we get into the 20th century. Now, at this time, you know, that's when you have, in 1906, is when the uh, Billy Watson's Beef Trust gained popularity and starts really taking over the burlesque wheel, which is the circuit of burlesque theaters that burlesque performers and troops traveled around to perform in. Um, there's a couple of great burlesque terms that I think it's important to touch on. One is the tit singer. <laughs> a tit singer was a male singer who performed in between burlesque acts. And just so you can place it in the context of things, Alan Alda's father was a tit singer. <laughs> and Alan Alda was raised among burlesque performers. And I like to think that Alan Alda being raised among burlesque performers led to his feminist sensibilities later in life. So as the 20th century progressed, and as America doubled down on its puritanical sensibilities, and said, we're not going to have alcohol, and we're not going to have skin, and started passing laws in states that said you can't have a skirt above so many inches above the ankle, and you can't show more than two inches of neckline. Burlesque became an art form where women could bust out of that. A, an art form where it was... Im <sighs> so what I'm looking for? Money. <laughs> it became <laughs> monetarily advantageous it's not the word I'm looking for monetarily advantageous to bust out of those restrictions to show a little more skin so you had burlesque performers in the late 19th century who crossed over into the early 20th century who began to forget to wear their tights on stage who began to have a costume malfunction on stage <laughs> that suddenly led to increased ticket sales. And the male producers of these shows noticed this and capitalized on this. And so we led into the 1920s where hemlines were raising, where sexual sensibilities were opening, where prohibitioning was happening, but there was a whole other subtext happening beneath prohibition and where there were more and more venues where adult entertainment, adult-themed entertainment was accepted. And in that milieu, you had a producer like Minsky who came and stepped forward and developed a whole uh, show format that was like vaudevillian in, in concept that included burlesque and singing and comedy. It was a variety act of sorts, but an anchor of that variety act was the promise of showing skin, the promise of showing female sexuality in an empowering way. Now, the sad reality of that is that a lot of the women that were involved in that world in that time were probably not empowered by it. They were probably in that world because of necessity because they had been excluded from other forms of entertainment, because they had been excluded from their families, because they needed money, and they were probably exploited in that environment. But there were a few performers during the 1930s and 40s and 50s that were held up 
that were given the opportunity to shine. Uh, Gypsy Rose Lee would be an example of that. Um, now, Gypsy Rose Lee, as she was developed as a teenager, by her mother, her own mother, recognized the monetary potential that was resident in Gypsy Rose Lee's appeal to the public. And so she developed an entire marketing campaign around Gypsy Rose Lee that Gypsy Rose Lee wasn't even aware of at the time, where her mother put her into shows and then falsely created an image that Gypsy Rose Lee was sought after by many admiring suitors and the other performers were spurned. And all of that was false because Gypsy Rose Lee's mother would uh, create flower arrangements that would be delivered to Gypsy Rose Lee's dressing room and she would create poison pen letters of, uh, you know, insults that would be delivered to her the other women in the performance and Gypsy Rose Lee was unaware of this as a teenager and thought that all of these people that were delivering flowers to her were real and she later discovered that her mother had manufactured this whole thing as a marketing ploy to build her up in the public eye and at that point she became I guess cynically to some degree accepted that as a reality later uh, Minsky recognized her for the star potential that she was and capitalized on her and helped her to build that brand such that she showed up at premiere nights in capes made of actual real orchids and told the press that she slept and bathed in all of her jewels because she was afraid that they would be stolen if she ever took them off her body. And that created a whole myth around her as a persona which led to people buying tickets for any shows that she was in. And during that period in the 1940s and 50s, headliners like Gypsy Rose Lee and Sally Rand and Faith Bacon and people in that caliber could command $1,000 a week for their art. And eventually controls on expressions of sexuality and sensuality in the United States lessened so that by the 1960s and the 1970s all of that loosened to the point that pornography became commonplace that strip clubs became de rigueur and burlesque performers who were not showing everything who were not showing total nudity were pushed out of the milieu if they weren't willing to go totally nude if they weren't willing to just shake it, then they weren't going to be accepted. A lot of performers, or burlesque performers during that time, ended up retiring. Some of those performers are still here with us. Um, so burlesque pretty much died in the 70s. And it disappeared completely. And you had porn and you had strip clubs from the 70s and the 80s. And then at some point in the 90s, Joe Boobs Weldon is a New York teacher and performer who, I, and I, I don't recall off the top of my head, and you can fucking Google it, but <laughs> Joe Boobs Weldon somehow dis rediscovered our burlesque-like stars of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And she began re-exploring burlesque as a, as a feminist art form, as a subversive art form, which is really amazing because at the beginning... 
at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, that's what it was. It was a feminist and subversive art form. She rediscovered it in those terms and said, you know what? We want to reclaim the female body. We want to reclaim the female body publicly for the joy that it gives us and the, the, the stories it can tell without it being defined by a male-dominated strip club industry. And so neo-burlesque was reborn in the 1990s. And Joe Weldon reached out and rediscovered and reconnected with the legends that we call them the legends today, that the, the, the women that performed in the 50s and 60s that are still alive and that were on their own and struggling to survive as retirees without any support in the 90s. She reconnected with them and began a dialogue of new people that were interested in that art form, learning from the legends. And now we have this world in 2018, Burlesque has enjoyed this enormous resurgence of acceptance as this feminist empowering art form. Sadly, it appears that much of the glamorous image of this era is actually only visible through rose-tinted retro spectacles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this very special episode of the Director's Roundtable. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you learned something new. Don't forget to check out our website for upcoming events. We have Every Brilliant Thing opening in January. And we have auditions for Matt and Ben, directed by Scott Rousseau, coming up. Our website is www.stagedrighttheater.org. Also, if you enjoyed this, go ahead and comment your favorite parts or maybe share a bit of your favorite theater history and maybe it'll show up in next year's very special episode. <laughs>